0: Well, good evening, Calvary Chapel. Uh, It's nice to uh, see you all um, online, at least. It's a little odd not being able to gather here with everyone, but we are grateful um, for this opportunity we have to connect via technology. Um, I'm Cody Borderwijk, I'm the Next Generation Pastor here at Calvary Chapel of Cheyenne, and I have the privilege tonight of uh, coming in and presenting God's Word with you all. Um, So after taking a brief break this past uh, week to focus on the most important event of all history, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, we're returning this week to our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Uh, We find ourselves currently in the book of Exodus, um, following along with the fulfillment of God's covenantal promises, the first made to Adam and Eve of the offspring who would crush the head of the serpent, uh, continued on with Noah. Noah. God's promise to not destroy the earth through flood. And then we see that promise given to Abraham, um, that of land, um, of a family that would grow and grow, and of blessing uh, that would be extended to the entire earth. Um, So we are following kind of that that storyline that continues throughout the Old Testament. Uh, It's a pivotal part of these first five books um, of the Bible. Tonight, we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, we've already seen God in, in this story grow Israel, Abraham's offspring, into a full nation and to deliver them from slavery as he had promised to. Israel is now a nation, but a nation without a home, traveling through the wilderness to the land that God had promised to their ancestors so long ago. On this journey, we see a number of important questions arise. Will God fulfill these aging promises he had made to people beforehand? And if so, how? How? Will he complete the work he started in bringing them out of Egypt? Will the nation perish in the desert? Will God be faithful to his promises? Will the people's doubt, unwillingness, and rebellion force God to abandon this covenant? How will the outcome of all this affect God's promise to send that final deliverer? What about the blessing that would extend to all mankind? Is God still with his people in hard times? Um, when I was going through uh, some schooling before entering into ministry here, I had a professor who liked to remind us that one of the most compelling reasons to study the Old Testament is to understand the character of God better. And I think this is one of those passages where we see a lot revealed about the character of God. In reading this narrative, we also must examine how all of these questions impact us today. Who is God? What is he like? Is he faithful? Is he powerful? Is he caring? Is his work dependent on our obedience? How should we deal with our own doubts? Is God still with us in hard times? And so one of the key points of this passage is that God desires that his people trust him and not test his faithfulness to them, not forget all that he has done in the past. God is faithful. God cares about our needs and God will protect his people and carry out his purposes no matter the opposition or the obstacles. In the more immediate context we see in this story, Israel is in the early stages of their journey through the wilderness, a place of testing and refining. They had just recently seen God's hand and provision in many ways. The plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, and the destruction of Pharaoh's army were all behind them at this point. However, as is common to man, they were quick to forget what God had done. In chapter 16, we see how they became hungry and questioned how God would feed them in the wilderness. Memories of the bountiful food of Egypt apparently was enough to make them forget the burdens of slavery. God answered by sending them manna, a miraculous sustenance from heaven each day, a way for them to be nourished and also a tangible sign of God's care and provision for them. With Egypt behind them, God leading them, and a way to be fed along the way, Israel continued their journey through the wilderness. And so again, we'll pick up now um, at the beginning of Exodus chapter 17. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. And we see as they're journeying on here a legitimate problem. There's no water. Usually, one would think when choosing a campsite, the availability of water would be a prime consideration. But in this case, God had led them to a place with no water in order to accomplish a greater purpose. We also see some legitimate concerns here. No water eventually means no life. How would God provide for his people in this time? Would he let them die along with his promise to bring them to a land of plenty? Um, I know this is something I've seen in some ways in my own life. Um, I think we can all think of a time where we've been thirsty and how much that really impacts our, our thought patterns. Uh, my background, I, um, for a time, competed in cross country and track as a, a distance runner. Um, I, I coach those sports now at um, high school level. And thirst is something that plays into that sport significantly. Uh, nothing can make you appreciate water like a hot day and a long run out in the sun and being reminded of how important that is and how great that tastes after not having it for a while. Um, And so this isn't just um, kind of them sitting on the couch and thinking, hey, I'm a little thirsty. This is probably a full day of not having water and just the the panic and the thirst that comes along with that. Um, And so continuing on, we see um, in verse 2, Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And Israel's response to the situation we see was less than admirable, quarreling and grumbling. They were quarreling with Moses, their leader, and grumbling about where he had led them. This quarreling with Moses was equated with quarreling with God. The Israelites had lost faith in their leader and in their God, the God who had literally parted the sea, humbled Egypt, and demonstrated his power over man and over nature, all on his people's behalf. This is the God they were questioning. Uh, If we skip ahead to the end of this passage, um, we can also see in verse 7 that this doubting Quarreling and grumbling were signs that Israel overall was questioning whether God was even with them, whether he was accompanying them any longer or they had fallen out of his favor. How do you respond to hardships? How do you interact with your leaders and your Lord in times of difficulty and testing? Are you ever angry at your circumstances? Do you ever feel like God has left you? And so we continue on in the passage, verse 4. Moses response. so Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. Leadership is difficult, be it leading a family, an organization, a team, a church, or a nation. Often God will call leaders to take people through difficult circumstances and to make hard decisions. We see Moses here with no idea what to do, possibly even despairing of his role as leader of Israel. This is not the first time, nor will it be the last, that we see Moses in this position of reluctant intermediary between a holy God and a sinful people. Fearing rebellion and desperately seeking God's aid, we also see Moses continually turning to God in these times, with one notable exception, rather than taking matters into his own hands. something we'll get into as we get farther into the Exodus. In verse 5, The Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And God responds to Moses' cry for help with specific instructions on what to do. Pass before the people, bring the elders, bring the staff, the one that he had struck the Nile with. Many of the people would see this group departing and the addition of the elders provided an opportunity to bolster their faith in their leadership as well as witnesses to spread the news of their miraculous event about to take place. Uh, It's interesting also to note the staff included in here. We see uh, earlier in the Exodus narrative, um, in chapters seven, chapters eight, chapters nine, chapter 10, uh, chapter 14 and 16, we see this same staff also used Um, to perform other miracles. Uh, This is the staff that Moses struck the Nile River with to turn it into blood. This is the staff that Moses was holding when he parted the Red Sea. Um, So we see this staff accompanying Moses um, as he performs um, other miracles, often also tied with water. In verse six, God continues, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. God promises to accompany Moses on this mission. The result is that the people's physical need for water is met, and the elders witness God once again working a miracle through Moses and through his staff. An interesting note um, to accompany this as well, um, if we look ahead into the first chapter of Numbers, uh, which was sometime after this, a census was taken of the people of Israel uh, that listed them having over 600,000 men that were able to fight in battle. Uh, So if we factor in that many men, um, women and children, uh, somewhere as an approximation of how many people we have here. This is a lot of water uh, coming out of this rock. This is um, a significant miracle performed by the hand of God. In verse 7, it says that he named the place Masa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? So we see Moses, at the conclusion of this miracle, rename the location. Masa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. It's also interesting to note that in naming these places, he didn't choose to name it after the miracle that happened but for the disobedience of the people. Uh, what was the takeaway of Israel for all of this? What did Moses want to make sure they remembered? Uh, we see that it is important to remember their disobedience in order to avoid this mistake in the future. And we see also that they're testing of the Lord. Uh, that their questioning was not merely of Moses, but really they questioned God. They questioned if God was with them, if God was accompanying them or not, if they had lost God's favor. And in the midst of hardship and uncertainty, they asked if God was even with them anymore. They had forgotten all the mighty works he had done to bring them out of Egypt, to save them from Pharaoh's army, and to provide for them in the wilderness. In their grumbling, The people of Israel asked if God had led them into the wilderness to die. Not only was God not going to allow his people to die, but he had a much greater purpose in leading them into the wilderness. To grow their faith as he sustains them and to glorify himself by displaying his power. God had deliberately placed them in a position of weakness. We see that they were led here into the wilderness by God. um, Into a position where things seemed impossible And divine provision was the only hope they had. And so in times like this, it's interesting to ask, what is more important? Our physical needs or our spiritual needs? Is God willing to deny the lesser temporarily in order to feed the greater need? To serve our spiritual needs over our physical ones? An interesting question to ponder as we seek the Lord and consider his faithfulness and his character. Um, As we continue on into the second portion of this chapter, um, it it seems to be kind of a shift in the narrative. Um, During my initial preparation for this message, I saw Exodus 17 as consisting of two separate but mostly unrelated stories. Um, After further inspection, we do notice some interesting ties between the two. And I believe there's a reason that the events occurred in this order and that Moses placed them together when he compiled this record. Um, We see the first half, the miracle we just discussed, the water coming from the rock. And the second half of the chapter, verses eight through 16, record Israel's first battle after departing from Egypt. We should be mindful of the context and events that preceded this. We need to pay attention to the role Moses fills here, as well as the prominence of his staff. We also need to think of the mental and emotional state of the people of Israel at this point in time. God had just proven his ability and intention of protecting and providing for them. He had acted miraculously through his chosen leader, Moses, and utilized his staff in such a way that it would serve as an unmistakable visual reminder of God's power both to provide and to destroy to show favor on his people, and to show judgment on his enemies. As we pick up in Exodus 17, verse eight. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. We see the stage being set for this battle. Joshua chooses men to go out and fight. God's chosen leader, Moses, goes to the hilltop with the staff of God. Verse 10, it says that Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek, with Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. As the battle rages, Moses raises his hands, likely with the staff in in one of them, And the tide of the battle shifts in the favor of Israel. However, if he lowers his hands, the battle shifts to the Amalekites' favor. So we see the outcome of the battle tied directly to the power and favor of God shown through Moses. Along with the reminder of the staff that God had used to work so many miracles before. This reminder that God was with them, that God was powerful, uh, that they had seen God work this way before verse 12 says that Moses' hands were heavy when they took a stone then they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it and Aaron and Hur supported his hands one on one side and one on the other thus his hands were steady until the sun set so Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword and so we see that as God clearly had the battle in his hands, uh, that Moses grew weary. um, Holding holding all of this over his head um, required help from Aaron and Hur in order to keep his hands raised and to secure Israel's victory. The fact that Moses grew tired and required assistance further illustrates that this victory came through the power of God, not through military might and not through Moses' leadership. That it was solely the work of the Lord that they attained this victory through. And we continue on in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it The Lord is My Banner. And he said, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. And we see three actions of remembrance mentioned here at the close of this battle: to write down this judgment, that Moses tell it to Joshua, and Moses is building an altar. Many of the issues we see arise in this chapter are directly tied with a lack of remembrance. Had Israel remembered God's faithfulness and power, would they still have grumbled and rebelled at the lack of water? Had they remembered God and his faithfulness? Would having nothing to drink seem so bad? If they had recalled that the Lord they serve was the same God who turned the Nile to blood, who parted the sea, and who had sent plagues to afflict Egypt? We also see, at the close of this, God's vow to make war on the Amalekites, on his enemies and to eventually destroy the very memory of them. This stands in stark contrast to God's faithfulness to Israel, his faithfulness to his people, whom he guides, protects, and provides for. Again, in verse 7, the Israelites asked if God was among them. The miracle of water from the rock should have made that clear, but the victory over Amalek really drove home the point and made it obvious who God was with and who he was against in this situation. With a few thousand years hindsight and the perspective of scripture, it's easy for us to be critical of the people of Israel in a time like this. To ask how they so quickly forgot all that God had done for them, the miracles that they had witnessed, and the faithfulness that God had shown. But are we really that different? We have the advantage of being indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, but how often do we still complain when we're presented with hardship? How often do we focus on the problems that are in front of us and forget what God has done for us in the past? How often do we question God's faithfulness and his purposes? And for the Israelites, did God's presence, blessing, or plan change at all over the course of these events? No. God was still with them. God was faithful. God is unchanging. But, What about their perspective? What about the way that Israel viewed their circumstances and how they viewed their relationship with God? How did that all change throughout this chapter? And in times of difficulty, lacking what they physically needed, we see that the people of Israel forgot God's previous displays of power and faithfulness. They tested God by asking if he was even with them. God was able to bring some things to their memory to give another display of his power and care, and to affirm their status as his chosen people. Using the same man, Moses, and the same tool, his staff, as he had done so many times before, to remind him of his faithfulness, to remind them of the work he had done, to remind them that God was indeed with them. And we see, for us here today, that God is faithful, as we see in this story. God is powerful. And by remembering God's past faithfulness and power, we can avoid putting God to the test and questioning if He is with us or not. We can be confident that He will carry out His purposes on the earth and He will protect His people. We see Him doing that so much throughout this passage. How do we apply these truths to our everyday lives? Here in 2020, during the coronavirus pandemic, uh, where I'm teaching to an empty room and there's much uncertainty and unknown, how does this apply to us? First off, I think that spiritual amnesia is a common affliction for mankind, not just for the nation of Israel, um, but for you and I here today. We are often quick to forget what God has done in the past And to turn our focus to our own issues and desires rather than focusing on God, on his power, and on his faithfulness, on remembering what he has done. Does it feel like God has abandoned you? Maybe you need to remember how he's been with you in the past. Do trials make you feel distant from God? It would be wise to question our memory before questioning our God's faithfulness. We know throughout our study of the scriptures, throughout our past experiences, that God is eternal, God is unchanging, and God is constantly faithful. Let us look to him in times of trouble. We also see in this passage that God is faithful and compassionate. God did not ignore his people's needs. Their need for water, their need for food, their need for guidance and encouragement. God did not ignore the threats that were presented to them. God acted on their behalf and rescued the people of Israel from their afflictions. We see that God is patient and loving. As we continue to read through the book of Exodus, the rest of the Pentateuch, and continue our study on through the rest of the Old Testament, we see that God is steadfastly faithful to his people. A people that continually break his covenants, question his motives and his leaders, and rebel against his commands. In spite of all of this, God lovingly seeks after them, sends shepherds to lead them back, and continues moving forward with his promise to send a redeemer to reunite his people with him. The promised one who would crush the head of the serpent and bring blessing to the entire world. That is the God that we serve. Let us take heart in his power, his faithfulness, his patience, and his love. Let us forsake our sins and the distractions that lead us astray, and let us draw near to this God in times of doubt, in times of suffering, and in times of difficulty. Confident that this God has secured our victory, that he is faithful, and that he is good. Thank you for joining me this evening. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, uh, we praise you for your faithfulness, God. I thank you uh, for who you are, Lord, that you are unchanging, that you are good, that you are sovereign, Lord, that you are faithful, even when we are faithless, Lord. I thank you uh, for the lesson you've presented us here in your word, Lord, um, that we can learn from the example of the people of Israel, Um, from your servant Moses, um, and from the different events that happened, Lord. I pray that you would help us to hold fast to you in these times, God, that um, when we doubt, when we question, when we are unsure, that we would run back to you continually, Lord. That you would lead us um, as you have in the past, Lord. That you would nourish us, that you would meet our physical needs, Lord. That you would guide us and that you would love us, God. I pray that you would help us to be confident, in your character um, as we go through life, Lord, um, that we would seek you and your glory. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.